Yeah, and I've gone back and forth on this, Zach, I'll be honest, and I've I've wondered whether what the role of religion is, and more and more I've come to the belief that we need to re-enchant the natural world. We need to come to see the natural world as part of who we are, not outside of us. And I think that at some level that will involve, it must involve religion. And not just one, but of course a spectrum of religions. listening to the Down the Wormhole podcast, exploring the strange and fascinating relationship between science and religion. This week, our hosts are... My name is Adam Pryor. I teach at Bethany College in Lindsborg, Kansas. Uh, All told, I have... I had to count this up this morning. All told, over my life, I have broken 25 bones. I was very klutzy. Ian Benz, Associate Professor of Elementary Science Education at UNC Charlotte, and I have actually uh, broken... Zero bones. Zach Jackson, UCC pastor in Reading, Pennsylvania, and I have broken two bones at the same time. Rachel Jackson, rabbi at Agudas Israel in Hendersonville, North Carolina, and I have broken six bones simultaneously. Kendra Holtmore, PhD student at Boston University, and I've broken one bone. Swam into the side of a pool and broke my nose in middle school. (laughs) Yeah, ouch is right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So our, our guest today is the executive director and William R. and Gretchen B. Kimball chair of the of the California Academy of Sciences, where he leads the institution's world-class museum as well as its programs of scientific research, sustainability, and education. A renowned paleontologist, passionate science communicator, and seasoned museum leader, he joined the Academy in September of 2019. To some, namely preschoolers and their parents, our guests may be best known as Dr. Scott, the paleontologist, the on-air host for the Emmy-nominated PBS Kids television series, Dinosaur Train. Outside of this enthusiastic audience, though, however, he is better known for his many other contributions to scientific research and public engagement. Among his peers in the scientific community, he is highly regarded for his expertise on late Cretaceous dinosaurs, from theropods in Madagascar to horned dinosaurs in North America. And in the museum community, he is celebrated as a skilled organizational leader, a passionate advocate for connecting people to nature, and a champion for the critical role that collections-based scientific institutions like the Academy play in global efforts to understand and sustain life on Earth. In addition to his role as a science advisor and host for Dinosaur Train, our guest has extensive media and science communication experience, including as a science advisor and host of the four-part Discovery Channel series, Dinosaur Planet, and as the author of multiple books for general audiences, including Dinosaur Odyssey, Fossil Threads in the Web of Life, How to Raise a Wild Child, a book aimed at helping parents, teachers, and others foster a deep connection with nature and children, and You Can Be a Paleontologist, a book for young enthusiasts of dinosaurs, science, and nature. We are very excited to welcome Dr. Scott D. Sampson. Thank you. It's quite the intro, so, Ian. Appreciate it. Yeah, I, you know. I'm still kind of excited. So my kids are upstairs. I know if they come running by me, I'm just going to be like, stop. So we would love to uh, ask you that question, Scott. Um, how many bones have you broken? In your own body. In your In own my, body, not. Yeah, if it depends on my body, we got to talk in the hundreds. Yeah. Um, but uh, but uh in my body, I believe only one, and that was uh, also my nose uh, in a rugby Ooh. tackle back in high school. Okay. That's impressive. That is kind of impressive. Because from reading your book, it seems you had a a very active outdoor childhood. Mm -hmm. I did, and I've had many sprains and, you know, cuts and bruises and all those things, but um, somehow managed not to break bones. So we we asked you to be here, or we reached out to you because, you know, obviously we're four of the five of us are parents, still fairly young children. So... Uh, we were all kind of big fans of the show, Dinosaur Train. And and so we just kept talking about, we got to reach out to, to Dr. Scott, the paleontologist, and see if we can get him on. And then as we started reading more of your work, your other work, seeing the work you're doing in museums, I, I started realizing, well, I, you're more than just Dr. Scott, the paleontologist. Um, <laughs> but so our initial questions we'd love to ask you about is just kind of, you know, what it is that made it so that you were famous to us. So how we got to know you 
is about dinosaurs. And so what was it that kind of attracted you to studying dinosaurs? Well, I think the vast majority or at least a large proportion of all kids, if they are exposed to dinosaurs, develop at least an interest in them, if not a passion. Uh, I was one of those kids. The difference between me and them is that I just never grew up. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I just kind of kept that passion and decided at one point, well, hey, you can actually make a career studying dinosaurs. Are you kidding me? Like, that's that's awesome. So yeah. um, that's what I did. And uh, and then after a while, I decided, huh, dinosaurs, they've been dead for millions of years. <laughs> There's all these things going on today that require, you know, real action. Maybe I need to branch out a bit. And so I, I left my mm. tenured faculty job and started doing more science communication and leadership work. So when did you do that? Because I'm really curious about that shift. That transition, yeah. Yeah. I I was at the University of Utah for about eight years, um, and it was a cross-appointment at the Natural History Museum where I was the chief curator and also with the geology and geophysics department where I was a tenured professor um, focusing on evolutionary biology and dinosaurs and things mm-hmm. like that. And Um, My wife is a doctor and she had finished up her residency and we thought, well, we could stay here in Utah or we could think about going somewhere else. And I was really interested in exploring science communication because I felt like science was one of the key areas that we needed to focus on uh, if we were going to find our way towards a thriving future for humanity. And I felt like I had a role to play there. And so I I left with no net and just started consulting and working with other museums. I did lectures. I um, did television. And then the Jim Henson company called me up and said, hey, we have this show called Dinosaur Train we're making. And that's when that came along, too. I guess what I'm curious about. So as a science educator, I interact a lot with scientists, especially scientists in, in the, in academia and, you know, even, you know, scientists, engineers, um, a lot of times they don't necessarily, depending on where you're at, many times they don't necessarily reach out into the science communication realm. They don't necessarily try to do what you did, right? Take that pretty much that leap and figure out, like you said, without a net, if this will work or not prior to that position, was it the joint position with the museum and also academia that kind of, do you think maybe that had an impact on your shift to science communication? Or was it even before that you were kind of feeling like I need to be able to communicate this stuff with people? It was way before that. Um, when I was 19, I one of my first jobs out of high school was working at a planetarium. And I used to go and do uh, shows for 250 school kids at a time, three times a day. So if you do that for years, you get pretty comfortable talking in front of a big audience, at least of little kids. And then I started branching out and do more, doing more with adults. So science communication was part of my DNA before I even um, graduated with an undergraduate okay. degree. And it was something that I just believed in. Um, and you're absolutely right. Not enough scientists mm-hmm. do it or feel comfortable with it. And partly that's because it's not rewarded in the academic world. Um, at least Correct. it wasn't. Previously, it is more so now, but I, I do believe it's something that all scientists should feel in many ways obligated to do. Well, and as you talked about, and I'm sorry, I'm dominating everyone, um, please interject. But as you talked about with it being rewarded, you know, I'm in a science educator at a the type of institution that's like one level below the top tier research institutions, right? We're still expected to do major research and everything. But when this effort started with even the podcast, it was not a, you shouldn't be doing that. I've never gotten that. Um, but it was more of a, how is it that this effort needs to be reported to my superiors when I turn in like my annual review, uh, and letters, you know, for promotion, what is it that needs to be done? And noticing that I almost in some situations had to make categories within documentation to, to point that, oh, I'm still doing a lot of work. I'm applying the work I've done, but to make sure that I get credit for it. So I think it is better. Uh, it is 
definitely more value than perhaps it used to be when you were in academia, but there still is, you know, a ways to go even within my own field. Well, it's kind of ridiculous when you think about academia that we do these two things. We do research and we do education. We are taught how to do research. We are not taught how to do education for the most part. And we're thrust in front of these students and told that we need to talk to them about what we do in a way that will help them understand. Education is a is an art and a science. And if you don't study it, you're only ever going to be so good. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it really takes a certain level of devotion to become a strong educator. And some people get there just by dint of, you know, courage and stick-to-itiveness. But um, there's a lot that, as we all know, um, are not very good at educating <laughs> and they don't really prioritize it and their institutions let them get away with it. So right. they don't really feel obliged. Yeah, and I, I just want to jump in on that that statement of the communication. I think it also expands past just academia. So when I was a bench chemist, there was this um, this need to publish papers in peer-reviewed journals or to present at uh, conferences, right? And you could only present in, to those particular people. And so you had to use this like highfalutin language and there's all the science jargon that if you boil it down, that's not really what you're talking about, right? I mean, that that's the detail, but you're not really talking about it. And um, one of the things that changed when I, when I made my transition from being a chemist to a rabbi is I just want to share everything. And I think that's one of the differences in the science community. So when I was, again, working with these companies, it was like, oh, it's proprietary information. It's intellectual property. And it's like, no, like it should be it should be available for everyone because science is the way to look at the world. And I think that is the shift that we need to make among scientists, not just academia or how to be an educator. Right. Which I totally agree with you. But that. Science is the way we look at the world, and that means everybody needs to look at the world with these lens. So that's our job, even if you're not, even if you're not that, which is one of the things that I really loved about your Dinosaur Odyssey book, is that you you took all these things and you gave it a this is what everyone can talk about. Even if you've even if you're even if you understand climate change or even if you understand biology, have you ever looked at paleobotany? Have you ever looked at plate tectonics from the standpoint of how important is Madagascar? Um, that was a new one for me. Um, so really looking at it and and saying it is the way we we live in the world. And that's a tremendous shift that I think needs to be shared. So I appreciate that you've made that known, that transition. I'm curious about the, I, I agree with the observation that as people in academia, we're not always supported to uh, like understand how to teach effectively to students. And you, at least me and my experience as a graduate student, I feel like the further along I get in my program, I, I feel increasingly supported. But the first time that I stood in front of a classroom, thankfully I actually wasn't nervous because teaching is something I want to do and so I was very excited, but I also was completely inexperienced and so I just sort of was like, yeah, we're gonna do this and it's gonna be messy, but uh, I guess I'll just figure it out. And I, I think that there is a spirit of camaraderie in my department with other students to share resources about how to communicate effectively, how to teach, and that's really nice, but I know not everyone has that. Um, but it's just making me wonder, what what do you think is the biggest challenge um, in your experience to communicate effectively, and what's what has been easy for you, I guess? <laughs> I think the biggest challenge in communication is understanding your audience. And it's why, to go back to uh, Rachel's point, most conferences are colossally tedious um, because the people presenting, they think they know their audience because they all belong to the same profession, but they're not thinking, okay, why does my audience need to know this? Why is this relevant? Why should I care? And be able to frame what you're communicating by starting where the audience is and then sort of taking them on a journey 
so that by the end they ha you've increased their understanding. Most people don't think of that journey. They just think about trying to look smart or get more words on the slide or you know, show that they've done this great work as opposed to caring about what the audience really needs at that moment. And I think that takes a while because anytime you're up in front of an audience, you feel vulnerable and, and it tends to make you more self-focused. And so seasoned communicators get over that and they realize it's not about them. It's about how those people they're talking to are reacting. And so I think that's by far the the biggest challenge to communicate to people well is just to get over yourself. I had a professor once and uh, she always used to challenge us, uh, me in particular, when we, I would, and I'll just talk in I language, when I would get all highfalutin about these uh, grandiose theological ideas that I was so smart about, and she would say, okay, now you have a Sunday school class, explain this to a seven-year-old, and, you know, for the most part, I couldn't, you know, explain the Trinity during a five-minute children's chat go like i i can't i couldn't and <laughs> that challenge kind of pushed me to realize that i didn't fully even comprehend the thing itself i just knew which big latin words that nobody understood to throw <laughs> out there that made it seem like i knew what i was talking about and so i a, a part of having children has been realizing how little I actually deeply grasp a lot of these concepts that I've taken for granted because I struggle to communicate that with them. And this is something that I have been, uh, th that other families have shared with me now that for this past couple of months, so many parents were th thrust into homeschooling <laughs> and suddenly they have to be science teachers to their to their kids and they don't even remember it because they didn't like it when they were kids and they haven't thought about biology in 30 years and but suddenly they're supposed to make sure their kids are learning in this time where they're stuck at home and they're they're flustered and frustrated and then they're feeling like they're failing their children and wondering if you have just any any tips for parents struggling to figure out how to keep their children learning in this time well, yeah, it's a great question, and it depends on what it is you're trying to teach them. Um, in, in general, going back to my previous point, it's always good to start where the kid is and where their interests lie. So in an ideal world, it's, it's great. So for example, if I want to get a kid interested in nature, I take them outside and I look and see what they're interested in. And then I magnify that and ask them questions about it and because they're, they're going to be interested because they've already shown that. Um, and so the same is true with kids at home. If you're teaching them history or math or whatever, if you can spin it through something that they care about, if you can teach math through baking, if it's the kid loves <laughs> to bake or whatever that is, now all of a sudden, wow, like they're really keen about this. And um, when my, my daughter, who is now 17, when she was a kid, and I would drive her to school, we would do what we called over the hill math. And I would make up these <laughs> stories um, and make her do addition or subtraction or whatever along the way as we told the story. But it was within the context of a narrative. And so she was psyched. She would go, can we do over the hill math again today? And, and it was fun because you made it really interesting for them. And so I think worry less about what the content topic is and worry more about how to engage your kid in a way that's meaningful to them. Yeah, so it sounds like taking deep dives into something. So that is, so my, I have a six-year-old son um, and he is, I have to say, a stereotypical six-year-old boy, which thrills my heart to no end because we are all about dinosaurs in space. Um, like it is just, it, and, and to the point where he's, we're like, we're working on a book of dinosaurs in space. Because um, why not? So for us, but he hates writing. Like he, he, ab like it is the worst thing that he just wants to do math. 
So like for us, it's like, okay, well, let's look at these dinosaurs and let's write a story about let's let's talk about these ones and let's look at the ones from the Cretaceous and where which asteroid are they going to be on? Um, And so I think I think that giving us the permission to to not talk about the topic, but get the big pieces to keep kids still educated. One thing that you said, though, Scott, that I'm I'm fascinated by. Um, so I have not read your your latest book, uh, How to Raise a Wild Child. My initial reaction, if I'm being totally transparent, um, was don't I have to be a wild parent <laughs> in order to raise a wild child? And I grew up in Colorado. I know that you have spent some time in Denver. So there weren't bugs in Colorado. <laughs> I don't know if you noticed that there weren't bugs there. Yeah. But now 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 I live in, in the South, in North Carolina, and there are so many bugs. And I, I, I particularly hate bugs. Um <laughs> I just I just do. You've um, got them everywhere. <laughs> yeah, Ian's over just a couple hours away. Um so from this context, how do we um, merge the self, the parent self, or the educator self, wh- whomever we are trying to educate, our insecurities, our particularities, right, our our oddities, with the needs of our audience and the needs of those that we are educating. That's a great question. So first off, if you're afraid of bugs, don't tell your kids because you'll make them afraid of bugs too. So, and it's hard, right? Because if there's this giant cockroach on the floor, you don't, you want to like react and, and yet it's better if you go, oh, this thing is so cool. I only, uh, just, just interrupt. I only, I only do that for moths. I am petrified, paralyzed of moths, but everything else I can tolerate. Spiders for me. Oh my gosh. I'll run the other way. (laughs) Okay. Sorry to interrupt. So if you can do that, um, and then another cool thing that you do, actually, that where I work, the California Academy of Sciences, um, we own this app, which is the biggest citizen science app on the planet. It is called iNaturalist. And you can take a photograph using your phone and upload it, and it will tell you what that thing is that you're looking at, whether it's a plant or an animal or whatever. And then it crowdsources um, with using experts to double check what you think it is. Um, And then ultimately that data gets used by scientists to say this thing was present at this place Mm -hmm. at this time. And there's an even easier one for kids called Seek, S-E-E-K, that you can just take your phone and have the Seek app up and point it at a plant or an animal and it will tell you what that thing is. And so now your kids can just walk around the yard and, and try and figure out who the other members of their local community are. Mm-hmm. And, and it makes it pretty fascinating. So getting back to your original question, Rachel, you do not have to be a wild parent. <laughs> um, all you need to be is curious mm-hmm. and, and have a desire to connect your kids with the outside world. One of the things that I often say about um, being a nature mentor, which is what I write about mm-hmm. in that book, is that you don't actually need to, need to know anything about nature. In fact, it's often better if you don't, because then mm. you're exploring these things with the kids and questions are way more powerful than answers. If a kid asks you a question, oftentimes they don't even really want to know the answer. They just want to engage you in the discussion. And if they ask you a question you, and you say, I don't know, what do you think? Well, all of a sudden the energy level goes way up And now you can figure out the answer together. Even if you know it, you can go and figure it out with them, take them through the process, and then they feel some ownership over that knowledge, which is powerful for kids. It's one of the reasons dinosaurs are so popular, because it's often the first time in a kid's life where they have knowledge that the grown-ups don't. Right? They can say all these names (laughs) and tell you when they lived and all this stuff. The parents are going... Parasaurolic, what the heck is that? <laughs> yeah. Right? And the kids are going, yeah, and it lived in the late Cretaceous, 75 million years. And, I, and so the kids have this feeling of power. So if you can give kids that sense of power with knowledge, that's really powerful. What is the proper pronunciation of that dinosaur, by the way? Because it always trips me up. Yeah. Parasaurolophus. Parasaurolophus, not parasaurolophus. Parasaurolophus. Yeah. And one of the things I like to do when I give talks to hundreds of kids and parents is I'll show a picture of parasaurolophus and I'll say, okay, 
without saying the name, how many adults in the room know the name of this? <laughs> and like five hands will go up and I say, okay, all you kids, how many of you know the name? And it's like hundreds of hands go in the air. <laughs> they all know it's just, it's, it's hilarious. And then they have that feeling of power once again. Right. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I teach future elementary school teachers how to teach science. Uh, and I was a high school science teacher, but I just loved, I'm so happy I shifted to preparing elementary school teachers how to teach something that we know from research, you know, they typically are scared of teaching because a lot of times they didn't like it. And so one of the things that I really emphasize throughout every semester of my class is the power of asking questions and even taking questions. And, you know, when you ask a question, someone responds with an answer to not say yes or no right away to not say, oh, that's right, you know, to take, to then turn that back on to the rest of the class as a way to continue the conversation and also keep the kids on their toes of thinking, I don't know if I'm going to be asked a question or not, but to establish a level of comfort between the teacher and the students. When I do the questioning, if I ever do it when I'm in a classroom of kids, they love it. When I do it with young adults, beginning of the semester, they struggle every time. And I'm always told that they hate how I do it because I won't give them the answer. Even if the first response to a question I pose is the answer I'm looking for, I've learned how to not react. So I will just say, okay, well, what does anyone else think about it? And that person will all, all night will think, wait, was I, was I wrong? And I'll even have them say, was I wrong? Was I right? Well, I don't know. What do you guys think as a way to continue the conversation? And I love how you talk about that in the book. Um, and you know, how to raise a wild child. I think he was part of your one of your core things I think you talked about, but the importance of asking questions, of questioning them. Um, and so I, I like that you even bring up the example of what it's like with uh, when you're presenting to kids and parents and stuff, because you're right, gives the kids the sense of power, right? Of being like, I know something. Um, and that's what we want. Yeah. And Ian, I would argue that you are doing some of the most important work on the planet, because as you well know, the there's all kinds of studies that demonstrate that by the time kids are in high school, they've already decided whether mm -hmm. or not they like science. And most elementary school teachers don't feel comfortable teaching it. So guess what? They don't really do it very much. Right. Or if they do it, they do it poorly. And it's all this facts-based stuff. And mm -hmm. if so if you can help get those elementary school teachers excited about sort of this curiosity-based approach to science it's so powerful and kids get into it so much so thank you for doing that work. thank you thank you and he just said my my job's very important <laughs> <laughs> and ian's done for the day uh, yeah. well ian if you need me to just clip yeah. that part and just i do send it i need to that you. i'm gonna put that right that's, on my door that's your ringtone now <laughs> that's right <laughs> adam we've not heard much from you and you were equally excited yeah i don't say yeah. much um, I'm trying, I'm trying to keep it clean for this episode. So I, I had to like center myself. Um, so, uh, do you not normally keep it? No, clean I, I, there's, there's a variety yeah. of sound effects that Zach has to leave it to the religion professor. Yeah, in right. the room. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, so I'm, I'm, I'm really, I'm really curious because, uh, to my mind, part of what you're describing when you, when you talk about the, the importance of communication for you, you're it sounds to me like you're talking about how it is that we foster certain sets of values, right? Mm -hmm. um, a, a value of curiosity, a value of questioning in, in my field, what we would call intellectual values. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm, as we, as we sort of shift towards thinking about religion, right? Religion has also played a role in, in fostering sets of values, but often it's portrayed as not fostering sets of intellectual values. Right. So religion might be really good for morals, it might teach you how to treat people, but it doesn't teach you how to ask good questions about the world. Let's leave that to science, right? Hmm. Um, so I'm I'm curious is you're already troubling that sort of distinction when you talk about the way that you're you you want people to to ask questions. And I'm I'm, I'm curious if there are moral values that you think go along with those those questions and curiosity that you want people to have. Yeah, I think it's fascinating that uh, there are still people that believe that education can be neutral um, <laughs> in terms of morals and values. And I think that that's absolute nonsense. Um, um, David Orr is an environmental scientist at Oberlin. And uh, he, he once said that all education is environmental education. And what he meant by that is that it doesn't matter whether you talk about it or not, 
you are expressing values. If you don't talk about it, you're basically saying the environment's not important. Um, if you do talk about it, then how you talk about it will express whether, for example, you think humans are part of nature or outside of nature. And so, um, and, and whether nature has intrinsic value, whether it is of moral worth, um, comes through in how you talk about things. So uh, I do believe that um, values and morals are always implicit in education and should be explicit, that we should be willing to own our morals and values. And we should be very thoughtful about what it is that we're passing on to kids. So one of the things that um, I'm actually writing about now uh, is that my strong belief is that we, um, we hold an outdated worldview. And that worldview says that humans are outside and above nature and that nature is not relatives to be respected, it's resources to be exploited. And the alternative, the major alternative to that worldview would be something like ecocentrism, which says that humans are part of nature, that nature does have intrinsic value, and we need to treat it as relatives that we're collaborating with to make healthy places for people and for those communities of non-humans. Um, and I think that that's a value we should be teaching in school. Um, and it's a value really interestingly held by most indigenous peoples in the world. And you always have to be careful generalizing about indigenous peoples, I get that. Um, and yet I think that is one generalization that, that applies. And, uh, and, and it's also the worldview that has probably dominated humanity for most of the 300,000 years that we've lived on this planet. It's only since the onset of civilization that we've really pushed ourselves away from the natural world. So. Um, yes, absolutely, Adam. I, I do believe that um, morals are deeply caught up in, in these things, and we should be explicit about that. That had to be a hard position to sell at an R1 research university. Yeah, there's some really interesting things that are hard to sell at an R1 research university. <laughs> um, and one of the funny things in academics is that there's this recent push, not even recent, it probably goes back 15, 20 years, all about interdisciplinarity, right? You can hear about this all the time. Everything now has to be interdisciplinary. But if you submit research proposals that are truly interdisciplinary, often they get completely shot down because the people reviewing them are not experts in all elements of what's being mm -hmm. presented. And so they, like, they shoot down the part that is closest to them and don't even understand or relate to the other part. Uh, and so... Yeah, I think we need to start bringing these different disciplines together. The Gaia hypothesis or theory is another example where there's amazing science behind it, but it is so broad that whether you're in the biological sciences or the geological sciences or whatever, most people still go, eh, I don't know, I don't really buy it. But if you actually look into it, the science is solid. So can you say more about good that? Examples. About the Gaia hypothesis? Mm-hmm. So the, the idea came from James Lovelock and, and uh, um, Gaia, of course, is sort of this Mother Earth in mythology. And I think that's one of the things that turned people off um, because they thought, well, that's not scientific. Why would you call it the Gaia hypothesis? I'm not going to buy that. But basically what it argues is that uh, all life on Earth interacts with the planet to create the conditions for life over time. So for example, oxygen levels in the atmosphere um, are at a certain level and have been have remained within pretty tight constraints for millions upon millions of years because if it was too high, fires would start too easily. If it was too low, life wouldn't thrive. And oxygen is an element that is produced. It's a byproduct of life. So it has to be kept within this pretty strict limits, set of limits. And that is done completely unconsciously by life itself. And that is an example of what the Gaia hypothesis is. It basically says that life creates the conditions for life. Hmm. Um, but it's so broad because it interacts with the geologic world and the biologic world and 
Um, and even religion comes into it um, for a lot of people that it's, it's tough. It's a tough sell for many audiences, particularly academic audiences. Hi, this is Rabbi Jeff Middleman, founding director of Sinai and Synapses. Down the Wormhole came out of our Interfaith Fellowship, but Sinai and Synapses also has projects directed towards Judaism and science. We have an open application for our project Scientists in Synagogues, which would give your community $3,600 to do work on Judaism and science. The deadline is July 23rd, and you can see it at sinaiandsynapses.org. Thanks very much. So that seems, while you're talking about that, it seems it could that could potentially maybe loosely connect to something you bring up in uh, your uh, your book about um, the immense story. And I would love if you don't mind kind of unpacking that for us, kind of describing what that is and unpacking it, because I was really intrigued by that part of your book. Yeah. So throughout most of human history, at least the part that we still have a record of. Most peoples have had an origin story, a story that roots them to their culture and typically to the place on the planet they call home. We are living in this kind of crazy moment. It's crazy in many ways, as we all know. But one of the crazy things about this moment is that a large proportion of all the people on the planet are not rooted by any kind of story. Hmm. And the upshot of that is kind of fascinating. It means that those people live in this little line called the present, and they think maybe as far back as their grandparents and as far forward as their grandkids, but that's about it. And, and if you're living in this snapshot of the present, the far future, even a couple of generations away, isn't really meaningful to you. It's not a big deal. And where you've come from also isn't very meaningful. Uh, and so uh, Brian Swim um, is one of the people that's written about this, um, and he is a protege to some extent of Thomas Berry, and Thomas Berry wrote about it, um, who, Thomas Berry, who called himself a geologian, which I love. And, uh, that's and, fabulous. And Thomas really said, what we need is, a, well, our problem right now is that we don't have a story. And we need a new story, one that takes into account the unfolding of the universe as science has communicated it to us, but also brings in the spiritual, uh, religious, theological elements. And the amazing thing about this story is that it could be molded into any kind of religious setting. As long as you're not advocating for a young earth, then, and you're willing to admit that the universe is billions of years old. It, it can be molded into a whole range of different settings. And so I'm a big believer in the fact that we, we need to create new, a new story. And it needs to be grounded in science. And it needs to have spiritual elements to it. Um, and diving for a moment into the religion a little bit more, there's an author by the name of Bron Taylor who wrote a book called dark green religion. And in that, he argues that many environmentalists, even some who consider themselves atheists and agnostic, are actually quite religious um, in their views about the natural world, that they see the natural world as literally enchanted in many respects and, and having deep spiritual value, and that the way they approach it in some ways is quite religious. Um, and he is among those people too that recognizes the importance of having a narrative that ties this together. Uh, and if you look at indigenous cultures, they invariably have cosmologies or cosmogenies that allow them to imbue their place with deep spiritual value. Um, and that is something that most people in the developed world completely lack. We are placeless. We are storyless. We don't really care about where we came from or where things are going or where the stuff in our lives comes from. 
And many argue that that is one of the sources of the disconnect that people have, of this, the, the sense of loneliness and depression and anxiety, because the upshot of that worldview is that you are completely isolated. And the other worldview with story means you belong. You belong. You are part of an unfinished story, and you have a role in figuring out how that story is going to end. And that's a powerful thing to have, that sense of meaning and belonging. And I think that uh, we really do need to have more narrative put into our education system, our culture in general, even in, in religion. Hmm. This is a good plug for episode 13 that we did way back when with Kenneth Makuakane. Yep. Um, <laughs> the episode is called The Decommissioned Sacred. We were talking about the 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 new giant telescope they're putting on top of a monarchia right and and the effect that western colonialism had on the development of science and the way that science was then used to promote and kind of be the religion of imperialism in many ways and how unimaginative it had been and how it had just trampled on so many people and why there's such yeah. distrust for science among so many people, uh, so many disadvantaged people uh, of, of the world. Um, yeah. Great episode. People should definitely listen to Kenneth. He's brilliant. Hilarious. <laughs> yeah. I, I wanted to um, follow up on something you just said, Scott. I, I totally agree that story is necessary. Um, I think it was before we started recording. I, I like numbers, but I recognize that not everyone feels emotionally tied to numbers. In fact, very few people do. Um, so story in and of itself is very important. And you were talking about science and said, if you assume, if you if you agree that the universe is billions of years old, I'm, I'm wondering what of those people that don't, right? Yeah. That there, that there's, there's a, unseemingly large population um again i expressed that i i came from colorado springs was one of my my places and that was not necessarily at least back then the most forward thinking in terms of science and the age of the universe and now i am in the south and the same can be said for a lot of my um <laughs> religious neighbors no, just, i yeah. my religious neighbors um so I think that I agree with that assumption, but how do you move forward in creating a science and religion story that, that sort of has a, a Venn diagram overlap if you can't agree on that assumption? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And I learned a long time ago that I don't ever try and convince people what to believe. When it comes to science, you either accept the science or you don't accept the science. So I don't believe in evolution. I accept evolution. And there's a big difference between those things because there's a lot of evidence behind the science. Having said that, if you're somebody whose value systems contradict with those of science, then that's okay. That's your right to do that. And I don't ever try and change somebody's belief system um, uh, with the exception of if they want to engage in conversation, I'm happy to talk about my views on the science and the values that spin from that, but only if they're willing to engage. I don't think we need to. What I think is more important is for everybody, regardless of how they see the age of the earth or whether the earth is flat or round or whatever it might be, that they see the earth as something that is worthy of um, protection and care. And that's why even among evangelical Christians, I'm excited to see things like creation care that have mm -hmm. emerged where people are saying, the earth is the creation of God and we need to take care of this place. And, and I think that, that is, that's the most important thing is that people see that the earth is really, uh, is valued and has inherent value unto itself and that it is critical for the future of people that we care for this planet that that's our home can can i sorry please now i want to push Adam. yeah Am I allowed to push? <laughs> i'm gonna push anyway whatever. this is God. this is uh, uh, yeah. uh, just a right so <laughs> so i I'm, I'm just curious here just because the way that that you phrase that right so like is the the value that should be offered to the earth intrinsic 
to the earth or is the value that should be offered to the earth that it is a home for people? To my mind, the, the value that should be offered to the earth is independent of whether it's valuable for people. In addition, people should see that the earth has value to them, but it's not like to my mind, and I know that this is contradictory to some forms of religion, or at least some interpretations mm. of religion, that earth is here for us to use up. Um, and I don't subscribe to that. I don't support it. Um, and and I think it, it makes no sense, given that we live on a finite planet, we can't have infinite growth. Every breath of air, every sip of water, every bite of food comes from the natural world. You are inextricably embedded in nature, whether you admit it or not. And nature, therefore, should have some value unto itself outside of the value to humans. But I know that that is uh, not the widely held value in on this planet right now. Well, but yes and no. I, I, I would argue though that I would argue that it is the widely held value. The reason why I think it doesn't seem that way, and I, I will admit that I'm wrong, but the reason, but think about it, everyone. The reason why it doesn't seem that way is because who, who were the loudest, right? The, the loudest people are the ones who control the narrative. We all know that if, if you're going to sit there and scream and scream, scream about stuff and, you know, and and say that either science is evil or religion is evil. Those are the things that are going to get picked up. Those are the things that get controlled by the narrative. But there are a lot of people that I know who identify as Christian or in some uh, religious perspective who do recognize the value in nature. I don't know if it's as, as if it's maybe more equal. I just don't know if it's as, as a large or, or I don't know if it's a majority of people who would say the nature's here for me. On a religious perspective, I feel like based on their religious upbringing, I think there's more people who who would say, no, we need to take care of the earth, not we need to just use it. God, I think you are really hopelessly naive. Yes. I am. <laughs> okay, tr- who turned into Pollyanna this week? I know. It was, it was, uh, that's usually my role. Um, I like that better. I'm not though. saying it's not being consumed. Uh, no, I think, I think beyond looking at who is the loudest. I, I think you're right, right? The people that shout are the loudest, right? And so we hear them. But if you look at people's value systems, if you look at people how, how people are actually treating things, if you look at the number of people that subscribe to X, Y, or Z religion, of which I will not name them because I still value my um, my other religious people, I, I, I don't, I think there's absolutely a use it, a use it mentality again regardless of who is talking but looking at what are the platforms right you're you go to a fairly liberal episcopalian place right mm-hmm. and and you're you're also while you're in charlotte which is still kind of in the south um it's a it's a more urban area i think that when you look at the global picture i i think i gotta go with with scott on this one that's okay yeah, it's okay. <laughs> I think there's also a big I, I, difference between like it. It might be easy to hear a lot of people make a case for what they believe, but it's always more useful to watch what people do to really exactly. know what they actually believe. And so I, I think that that that's at least seems to be the case of what I notice that it especially among like you know liberal people who there's something about the virtue signaling of mm-hmm. like what you think that you're supposed to believe and then come to find out maybe you're not actually like living up to the things that you feel like you have to signal to other people that you believe but you do it because you want to feel like you're part of a moral community and and that's not just liberal people like any kind of person does the kind of virtue signaling um, to be part of a community, but it doesn't necessarily translate to individual action. And so, sometimes it does, but I think that's why in this particular case, I I would also tend to see the use it narrative. <laughs> as I, the, I will say I love being the, 
I love being the most naive right now. I, it's, it's really I, I think it's fun, important actually. to highlight that, that that Rachel and Kendra and I <laughs> utterly agreed on something just right out of the never game. happened. It's <laughs> never really happened. Important to, to bring up. <laughs> yeah, I'm always waiting for the moment to roll my I'm eyes going at for Adam. My help. <laughs> I'm glad I helped you out today, Kendra. Teacher, I did roll my garden, eyes, and it will change the way that they see the world. And not say that again. Teach a person to garden. And it will change the way they see the world. Not like mm. chemical fertilizer, weed killing kind of garden. Teach a person to organically garden and to grow food and to tend to those plants, to 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 pluck the blossoms when it's too early, to uh, to identify which of the other plants growing around it will help it and which will hurt it, to 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 grow an attachment to that physical plant itself and to mourn its loss when slugs get at it overnight and like to to grow in that dirty connection to a growing thing changes a person and i don't know anyone who has committed their like their free time to tedious gardening or farming who has that kind of selfish the world is here to consume mentality they all understand this uh, beautifully spiritual intrinsic connection that we have with the world around us. My hands are still dirty from uh, being out weeding in my uh, my milkweed garden, which is, I love the irony of weeding out weeds around the weeds. Um, but, you know, a weed is just a, a plant whose value has not been properly appreciated, right? And you're helping those monarch butterflies. Mm -hmm. That's why we planted it. Yeah. I, I mean, I think the the piece that I'm I'm I, I appreciate the the argument that you're making, Scott, because I think it's it's so so important, and I think it's also really difficult to make um, in terms of to 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 treat the earth right to to sort of treat the planet as though it has intrinsic value that we need to show it in a finite world really requires a certain sense of self-loss and self-sacrifice um, in the face of realizing what that really entails. And as someone who works with 18 to 22-year-olds on a regular basis, <laughs> that feels like a, a tough argument to win some days. Yeah. And I think, I mean, you all know values get inculcated pretty young in life and they're hard to change later. Um, but I think that's why it's so important to raise kids with certain sets of values. You know, a few years ago, two years ago, I was up in the Great Bear Rainforest in Northern British Columbia, which is like the Galap near the Galapagos of BC. It's this set of islands that are off the coast um, that are amazing old growth rainforest. Um, and indigenous peoples dominate these places in a very positive way. They've lived there for thousands of years and they still hold on to traditional culture in many ways. And I was up there and, and these cultures are struggling. These communities are really in trouble. They, they struggle with food security. They have all kinds of mental health issues. Um, housing is horrible, all these things culturally. And yet they are deeply immersed in protecting the place. Um, and holding on to the health of the place. And there is a, the chief of this one place that, uh, where I was, Doug Nislas, I said to him, you know, how can you be so focused on the natural world around you when you're struggling to meet the basic needs of the people in your community? And mm -hmm. he looked at me like I had two heads. And <laughs> he said, well, what do you mean? And I tried to explain, you know, like, the hierarchy of needs and all those kinds of things. And he said, he said, Scott, that makes no sense. If this place isn't healthy, then we're not healthy. Mm. We are, we are part of this place and this place is part of us. So from their worldview, it made no sense not to provide, not to give the natural world intrinsic value, made no sense at all. But the dominant, I would argue, sorry, Ian, the dominant worldview okay. is is this anthropocentrism, this human-centered worldview. And from that worldview, nature is just something that's out there that maybe is in the nat national parks, but isn't really of much value. And why should we care if a few species go extinct, all of that? We don't oh, yeah. see the intricate connections to who we are. So then do you think that religion and spirituality 
has a role in creating that thriving, that human thriving and the natural world thriving as well? Yeah, and I've gone back and forth on this, Zach, I'll be honest, and I've I've wondered whether what the role of religion is. And more and more, I've come to the belief that we need to re-enchant the natural world. We mm. need to come to see the natural world as part of who we are, not outside of us. And I think that at some level that will involve, it must involve religion. And not just one, but of course a spectrum of religions. And so, yeah, I, th I think that that's there. And we need to be having this conversation between science and religion so that we can think about how to integrate these going forward and how we can supply kids in school with values that they can take with them no matter what religious or spiritual tradition they follow. So I'm curious, um, because you, you kind of touched on it a little bit with the apps you talked about. And uh, what were the names again? There's Seek and... iNaturalist. iNaturalist, right. And so given the situation that the world tend, you know, kind of kinds of, we kind of find ourselves in right now. And so let's just focus on the U S right. Most school systems are winding down this academic year, but there's a lot of talk now about what will the next academic year look like because of the pandemic we're having it at K 12 levels and also higher ed. And so we know that technology will be a huge factor in what happens I mean, it already is, but even more so next academic year or so um, with the way schooling will be done. You have a chapter in here about balancing nature and technology. What, what would be your suggestions or ideas that you could share with people on how we can do that for, you know, let's just focus on K-12 teachers. What is it we can do? Because they are approaching a very challenging time of trying to be better prepared for this ne next academic year that many of them were not prepared for rightfully so because of the way it happened what would be your suggestions to them on here's how you balance the the potential use of the technology that we know we have to rely on but let's also balance the use of the nature that you know nature that's around your school and around these children's homes yeah um my friend and author on this topic richard louv likes to say um the more high-tech our lives become, the more nature we need. And I subscribe to that. And I, I believe that we need to co-create a future that is absolutely high-tech on the one hand and nature-rich on the other. And that's a future that nobody's really envisioned yet. Um, and, and I think religion can play a role in helping us figure out how to get there. So in terms of uh, teachers, clearly technology's got a huge role moving forward and maybe in the next year or two, an, even an outsized role. But one way that teachers can pretty easily connect with nature is to stop thinking about nature as something that's far away and start thinking about nature as something that is actually on and in us. I mean... There's on the order of 70 trillion cells in a human body, and over half of those cells are not human cells. They are bacterial and fungal cells, which means that we are less than half human, which means that we are not single individuals. We are bipedal colonies, entire <laughs> ecosystems unto ourselves. And so even just making that reality known to people is kind of an eye-opener. Now, if you can take the schoolyard and think about greening that schoolyard um, to go to, you know, the earlier comments that Zach was making about gardening. If you can plant a garden, mm -hmm. if you can plant native plants, those native plants will attract native insects, which will attract native birds, etc. You can attract nature to that place. If you can put in an outdoor classroom and a garden and for the elementary school kids, a natural play space, which by the way is safer and more engaging than a traditional metal and plastic play space. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, just provide opportunities for them to engage in the outdoors. Now you're able to bring in the technology on the one hand and the nature on the other, and you've helped to make these kids healthier. It turns out that the more diverse um, in terms of 
biodiversity. The more biodiverse the places are that we live, the healthier we are, which is pretty pretty amazing. The more species of non-humans that exist around us, the healthier we tend to be. And so by fostering that around in schoolyards, um, that could be a complete game changer, particularly in underserved, under-resourced communities where nature can be rarer. If we can help to green those schoolyards, all of a sudden, these kids have places to go even out of school uh, to help connect with nature, which is powerful. Yeah, I have an update, by the way, from a couple of, what well, was a couple of months ago, probably at this point, when we talked about uh, my experience in guerrilla gardening in the cities <laughs> where we would uh, take over disused spaces that the city wouldn't sell and turn them into small seed gardens bombs, or right? make seed bombs that you could throw over fences <laughs> into places. There is a new movement among people in cities called guerrilla grafting because the trees that line the cities are intentionally bred to be sterile so that they look pretty, but they don't actually create flowers or fruits or anything to attract local wildlife or to make mess on the sidewalk. And so people are going by night and they're grafting fruit bearing branches onto these sterile trees, which then <laughs> grow and you don't realize they're there until suddenly there's apples that are growing along the streets of Philadelphia. Artificial and insemination at the exactly, tree level. Exactly. To amazing. attract local pollinators and also to provide food in food deserts. Yep. It's love amazing. It. I love like these gorilla gardening techniques. Um, but we are we are nearing the end of our time together. Um, so I wanted to give you, Scott, uh, a moment if there's anything mm -hmm. that you would like to share, anything that you'd like to add um, to the conversation here at the end. Well, first off, thank you for for doing this. These kinds of discussions are all too rare. And we need to have a dialogue in society right now about the future of science and religion and their integration. And it is not happening in any kind of serious way that I can see. Um, and so discussions like this are really important. So thanks for doing that. Second, I think it would be really great to have encouraged listeners to think about shifting the worldview around sustainability. Um, and by that, I mean, sustainability is all about doing less bad. It's about the underlying messages. Humans are bad for the planet. So all we can do is less bad. We can lower our carbon footprint. We can use less water. We can do these things to make ourselves less bad. But what about a worldview that allowed humans to see themselves as being good for the world? What if humans and non-human nature actually collaborated to make healthier places generation over generation. That would be a completely different way of doing things. And Zach, to your point, people can do that by seed bombing empty lots, by planting you know, native plants in their yards or their little planter boxes, welcoming wild nature back. That's just one of the things, one of many things that we can do to just make the places we live better generation over generation. So much of the planet these days is degraded by humans. So it's conservation is not enough anymore. We can't just say we're gonna conserve these places. We actually have to regenerate them. We have to make them better. And so I've become a big fan of the notion of regeneration replacing sustainability. I actually think sustainability has become a limiting term because it forces us to do these little ad hoc solutions to individual problems. So if we change our light bulbs or if we drive an electric car, rather than seeing the whole system of which we're part and thinking, okay, what does this system need to be really healthy in the next generation or to start building that over time? And this is where communities have to come together. And I think religious communities and scientific communities need to come together and have conversations about what do we want this place to be in Pick your time, 2050. What, what would it look like if it was truly thriving in 2050? And let's come to some agreement on that and then work together to build that toward that vision. And don't give up to sort of, well, we'll just make ourselves a little more sustainable. Let's actually think about doing good for the world. Hey, man, that'll preach. I like that. Yeah.
Okay. Well, that's a great you. worldview. Thank you it so, so much worldview. for taking up your time to meet with us. Uh, yeah. I think we have, it was a running gag for a while in the beginning of our show where <laughs> you were mentioned maybe a dozen different times that yeah. we need to get Dr. Scott on the show. To... <laughs> and every single time you'd come up, one of us would start singing the theme song. Yeah. So, so. so I'll finish off by telling you a cute little story about Dinosaur Train. When they first contacted me, I was actually here in this house I'm in right now, and I got this phone call from the senior executive at the Jim Henson company. And she said, she said, Dr. Sampson. And that was way back when people actually called me Dr. Sampson and, and instead of Dr. Scott. And, and, and she said, we're doing this show for PBS and it's going to be about dinosaurs. And uh, we'd like to know if you'd be interested in getting involved. And I said, well, that sounds pretty cool. What's it called? And she said, well, we're going to call it dinosaur train. And I said, what are you talking about? You can't call it that. And she said, what do you, what do you mean? And I said, listen, I'm a paleontologist. I spent a bunch of my time trying to convince people that T-Rex and other dinosaurs didn't live at the same time as people. You can't go <laughs> sticking them on trains like the damn Flintstones or something. And she said, she said, no, 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 no. Don't worry. We're only going to put dinosaurs on the train. <laughs> <laughs> And I thought, holy shit, that's brilliant. That's like, that's like chocolate and peanut butter if you're four years old. Yeah. I said, it doesn't exactly. get any better than that. And I said, all right, count me in. That's, that's really great. And um, time travel. <laughs> and time travel. But then yeah. I said, okay, hold on, hold on. Because I'm all about connecting kids with nature. The last thing I want to do is create some new digital format to addict kids to screens. So you're going to have to let me say something at the end of the show to help convince them to go outside. And my wife, Tony, actually came up with the tagline that I use, which is get outside, get into nature and make your own mm -hmm. discoveries. And truth be told, I had no clue if a television show could convince kids to turn off the television and go outside. But the experiment's been a grand success now more than a decade mm -hmm. later. Um, not only was it so successful in the first year that we turned the whole show towards connecting kids with nature, Dinosaur Train has been so successful that now a number of other shows on PBS and elsewhere have focused on connecting kids with nature mm. um, because it turns out it's a great way to get kids thinking about the natural world. So anyway, I just thought you might enjoy that. No, thank you for that. Marvelous. Yeah. Yes. That is so great. This has been episode 42 of the Down the Wormhole podcast. A huge thank you again to Dr. Scott for taking the time to chat with us. You can keep the conversation going over at the Down the Wormhole Conversations Facebook group. Make sure you check the show notes for all those links and further readings. Also, a big thanks to our supporters on Patreon, whose generous donations make this podcast possible. Next week, we are wrapping up our mini-series by talking about every parent's favorite word, screen time. What does the most recent research actually suggest? Should you limit screen time for children, or yourself for that matter, or is it a matter of quality over quantity? What are some of the practical tips for we who lean heavily on our tech during these COVID times? I promise you it will not be judgy or preachy in any way. We're all figuring this out together, friends. Until then, remember kids, get outside, get into nature, and make your own discoveries.